And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our special guest author joining us from Miami is Dr. Stephen A. Christie, author of Speaking for the Unborn, 32nd Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments, published by our friends at Emmaus Road Publishing, naturally available and proudly available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Welcome, Dr. Christie, to EWTN's Bookmark. Good to have you. Great to be, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, is this your is this your first book? You're, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, and now you're an author. How'd you become an author? This is my debut book. I, I have written a medical book, but that's not quite in, very important. This was uh, my first real venture into publishing. Mm -hmm. um, I guess why I wrote the book. There's there's I guess there's a pithy answer. Mm -hmm. There are 62 million reasons why I wrote the book. 62 million abortions since Roe in 1973. That's uh, combined populations of California and New York. So if what's being aborted isn't alive, it's not human, then it doesn't matter. But if what's been in, aborted is alive and human, then we've aborted 62 million children, and that's why I wrote the book. I think I think the other reason I would say I wrote the book is because I really believe the pro-life cause mm -hmm. is a winning one, and we have to be able to articulate our very powerful and persuasive reasons to anyone who asks. And like many people listening and, and watching today, we've all heard these wonderful arguments, uh, right. rebuttals to pro-choice arguments. I thought it was time to collect them, to edit them, to modify them, and put them together in a, a user-friendly format that you could actually use in real-life discussions. And that's now, what this book was about. Now, clearly, uh, your last name, Christie, obviously you grew up in an incredible Catholic family. You've probably been pro-life your whole <laughs> life. And, and now we have to listen to a man write a book about it. Tell us why my impression's incorrect. Your impression, obviously, is incorrect. So I grew up in a very secular, progressive household. I went to a very pricey, secular, uh, progressive high school where it was understood that educated, sophisticated, and thinking people were obviously, obviously pro-choice. Uh, we didn't know why they were pro-choice, but it was so obvious we didn't even bother asking. And conversely, uh, pro-lifers were uneducated, unthinking, and probably intolerant Jesus freaks. And I went to law school. I was still pro-choice and atheist. When I went to medical school, I was still pro-choice and atheist. Um, and if you'd asked me why I was pro-choice, even in the beginning of medical school, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I might have thrown out a, a cliche, you know, the my body, my choice, or, or uh, you know, I call you a misogynist, but I, I couldn't really explain my position. And, and what, what changed me, I guess, in a word, I would say is, is the truth. I like to you know, remind, Shakespeare says, the truth will out. And in medical school, you know, we study the facts about science and embryology, and more critically, you you hold in your hands embryos and fetuses, mm -hmm. and we learn there's a def you know a definition of life. It's not a political issue. It's not a it's not a philosophical issue. Um, it's not a religious issue. The the definition of what is alive is a scientific question that science is fully answered, mm -hmm. and it's it's in every embryology book and every biology book that's studied at every medical school throughout this country, and. It, and it, that that inevitably right. change, changes you. But, but why doesn't, if it changed you from where you were coming from, why doesn't it change every other medical student? You know, it's interesting. There was, there was a precise moment for me when it changed me, and maybe this will help illuminate this, this question. So one evening I was in the anatomy lab, and there was this ante room off to the side that nobody goes into, covered in dust, and in the corner was a cabinet sort of turned against the wall. And I walked in there one evening, and I looked in the cabinet, and on shelves were jars of embryos and fetuses in formaldehyde. And I began staring at them, and I, I, began, I became horrified at, at how irreverently these, these babies were being treated. They were left and discarded, probably hadn't been looked at in years and years and years. So the next day, I, I, I found our embryology professor, and I told her, I confessed to her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. I found these embryos and fetuses, these babies, 
these babies on the shelf, it seems very irreverent to me. And she looked at me and grew agitated and angry. And she said to me, those, those are not babies. Those are embryos and fetuses. They were never alive. Never, never, never. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought of Hamlet and Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, the lady doth protest That's too much. And I looked at her in the eyes, she looked at me, we froze, and the truth right. became evident, evident to me. At that moment, I knew what I was looking at, and she knew the truth too, which is right. interesting. So the, so the question is, why didn't she acknowledge it? It comes down to a theory I have about, about you know, those three monkeys, the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. If to deny the truth is very difficult, the truth about the reality of, of the unborn. Um, but if you can, for a generation or two, if you're able to close your eyes and close your ears and never speak the truth, you can lose sight of the truth entirely. Right. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. Yes, uh, to carry Shakespeare for maybe she's like Lady Macbeth, uh, you know, just a certain amount of, you know, guilt on her hands, so to speak, that Absolutely. she doesn't want to deal with. Now, you, you talk about the bulk of the arguments and rebuttals included here, uh, as you indicated earlier, not original with me. I've tried to present the strongest, most persuasive rebuttals possible. Now, you, you, you put them into bite-sized 30 seconds, but you many times have multiple versions or several versions to questions. Let me ask her, are there any popular arguments uh, that are out there that you looked at and said, this really doesn't work? Well, interestingly, I'm a devout Catholic, which is a whole other story, but one thing I've learned when debating in the real world with real pro-choice people, I avoid all religious arguments. Mm -hmm. Now, my wife argues with me a little bit about this, but I've learned that the people you're, you're debating with almost always are secular progressive atheists, and you, we have so many wonderful arguments to make on, based on science, based on the law, based on social justice, based on morality, based on the visible evidence. And if you've made nine arguments in a discussion during a debate, and they're non-religious arguments, powerful arguments you've made, and then you say the word God or sanctity of life or the Bible, you'll see the face of the person you're, you're speaking with change, and you can read their mind. And their mind is saying something like this. They're saying, and I've had this experience, they're saying, Steve, oh, 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 I, I didn't realize you're one of those freaks. Mm -hmm. And then every non-religious argument I made has disappeared. So I've, I've mm -hmm. read many, many wonderful religious arguments against abortion. And when debating a religious person, they're wonderful arguments. But I've learned I, I don't go with those arguments. I, I avoid them whenever possible. I feel it's handing a club to your opponents with which to beat you over the head. Well, that, that sounds perfectly logical. Let me ask you, when you're talking to, let's say, uh, other people who uh, are Catholic or Christian or religious in some way, and they say, well, uh, Steve, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with abortion. I wouldn't have an abortion. But, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I don't want to impose. These are some of the arguments you deal with in the book. Uh, do you use religion in that argument if you're dealing with somebody who is religious, or do you stay away with that? Stay away from I that. Generally, anyway? I generally, I generally stay away. I feel our arguments are so strong otherwise that I don't mm -hmm. feel there's a need to go there. If I see the opening for it and I know they're 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 very faithful, I'll use it. But in terms of imposing the arguments we have against mm -hmm. people who say I don't want to impose my views, the arguments are so strong. Mm -hmm. You know, if we tell people that every member of society imposes their morality on everybody else every single day on critical moral issues yeah. like rape and murder and theft we not only impose our morality on people but if they commit those crimes we'll throw them in jail and that's right. imposing their morality you know every single day that's what we do and for somebody to say you know i'm personally pro-life but who am i to impose my views on other people i always pull up the, the classic argument i say well you know i'm personally can you imagine me saying i'm personally anti-slavery but yeah. If you want a slave or two, if you want a slave or two, that's your business. Who am I to impose my views? And that's obviously nonsense. On critical moral issues, we have a 
duty to impose our moral views on otherwise. And, and if we don't, it is actually immoral. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, the secular society is really imposing their morality, aren't they? Absolutely. They're imposing the morality. They just don't want to call it imposing. Right. Uh, they, 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 it's not imposing on their, their side if they dismiss us as misogynists or, or religious Jesus freaks. Right. Then, then, it's, then they sort of dismiss us and they don't have to make arguments for us. Right. Now, in the table of context, you got a forward, you talk about strategy, but you also break it down as category one through basically eight. And it seemed like they sort of lined up uh, in the amount of weeks of, uh, of the child growing in the mother. Is that a fair analysis of what you put together and why'd you do that? You know, I, I actually. It, you're actually right. There is a lot of correlation, but I actually I organize them just by category as to what things would would you could use multiple rebuttals for the same types of arguments. I thought by categorizing the arguments that they were making, we could categorize and, and organize our rebuttals. So, a lot of them fall into the not alive, or it's not a person, or it's not a human. The you know the body might um, you know it's it's a clump of cells argument, for instance. Um, or it's a potential human. Uh, the other categories, you know, woman's autonomy, the my body, my choice argument. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I found if you clustered your arguments and rebuttals together, you could recall them. That's why, as you mentioned before, mm -hmm. I offer multiple rebuttals from multiple arguments because some might feel more comfortable to you. So you can make these your own. So you'll, you, you take these rebuttals. You don't have to memorize them word for word, but mm -hmm. you sort of memorize them as bullet points. So you can pull them up and use them in a way that you feel comfortable using them. At the beginning of the book, you talk about strategy. The pro-choice movement relies on denying the truth about abortion through denial, manipulation, and falsehood. You go on to say, inevitably, their arguments boil down to a single falsehood. Sex is liberating and should be without consequence. Yeah, that ultimately is the, is the final argument they make. The argument about whether it's alive or whether it's human or whether it's a person, those are arguments that the pro-choice movement lost years and years ago. Their ultimate argument is that sex is liberating and must be protected at all costs, which is really a broken human anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think that our personal sovereignty is the most important thing in the world, that en then anything that gets in the way of that sovereignty must be destroyed, and mm -hmm. even if it means our own children. And that's where they've they've led. So in the book, we, as you talked about, we mentioned strategy. Mm -hmm. You know, the book we, before we ever get to the arguments, we talk about where we speak, we talk about how we speak, and then we get to what we speak, the words we speak. And and for the where, I think it's important to to stress. You know. We see the the Ben Shapiro's of the world out in stadiums all day long, and they're you know confronting you know masses of crowds who are fighting with them, and that's wonderful and noble. That's not what I can do, um, but we all have an obligation in, in our or in the course of our ordinary lives to 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 speak with the people that are around us. Right. So it's our family members, it's our friends, it's our coworkers. And, and that's the, the role we have. That's the where we speak. And the how we speak is we always speak charitably. We always speak kindly with compassion. Uh, these are arguments that you know we, people tend to get hot under the collar, and we just can't do that. Our, our job is to, to, to win hearts and not necessarily always winning arguments. Right. And a lot of people say, say to me, right. yeah. Yeah, a lot of people say, you know, what does it actually mean, Steve? Winning, you know, winning hearts, what's that mean? And mm -hmm. for me, I've learned when I'm having a conversation with somebody, now my parents are pro choice, my childhood friends are pro choice. So when I'm speaking with somebody, especially a stranger, I think, how would I speak if these were my parents? Or how would I speak right. if these were my closest friends that I've grown up with? And the words I always hope to hear are somebody say to me, Steve, you know, that's interesting. I never really thought about it that way before. And to me, that's the sound of the heart opening up to the truth. Right. And, you also, and that's, that's, right. that's the key. Right. And you also point out the fact that when you're talking, that 25% of the women who you might be speaking with probably already had an abortion. 
uh, or certainly if they're not, they didn't have one, they were probably involved in someone having one or being involved with it in some fashion. You also talk about, which is fully uh, what this book focuses on, being clear but simple but brief. Why? Well, I think it's been studied. The attention span of the average person is, is less than one minute during a discussion. Mm -hmm. Plus, you want to give something to, something to leave them with and to hang on to. So some people say, do everything in, in, in steps of three. Give them three points. I, I've learned a simple, clear argument sticks with them, mm -hmm. especially when it's delivered respectfully um, and with an open mind. I try to agree with people as much as I can when we're, when we're having these debates. If there's a small point they make that I can agree with, I, I, I make a real point of saying that's, you know, I agree with you on that, or that's a great point. However, there's one addition I would like to make to that. Mm -hmm. So I, I've learned you win hearts by agreeing with people and treating them with respect and not poking, poking them in the eye. And I think it's critically important to remember that 25% of the women we're speaking with have had an abortion. And it's just not the, the secular other world out there. These are our friends, our parents, our coworkers, our family members. And these women, are, you know, suffer greatly. Uh, they have guilt, uh, and we need to treat them with compassion. Absolutely. Right, and many, many for over the years, obviously, were misled and 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 were not presented with the actual truth uh, over the years, and and so we have to realize that and not treat as if somehow, well, you should have known better. You said, why am, am I pro-life in 30 seconds? This manual includes my 30-second summary of why I'm pro-life. And you recommend that not only you understand that, but that you memorize. You talk about how you went about memorizing it. Well, it's I, the opportunity to defend the, the pro-life position I've learned is common and it's usually unexpected. So you might get one chance to make your shot and you have to make it count. Mm. So often I've, I learned early in this, in this process that, that pro-choice people can't articulate their views. They throw out a cliche, they throw out a, a personal attack, but they can't articulate their views. But depressingly, the pro-life cause, most of us can't articulate our views either. So I learned we need to stop and memorize you know, for ourselves and understand why we're pro-life. So for me, I have a 30-second summary that I've memorized. I usually can remember, remember most of it. Mm -hmm. So when the opportunity arises, I can pump it out, and it gives people real food for thought. And and I'm happy to, mm -hmm. to, to, to give you mine. It's in the book. It's on the mm -hmm. it's on a website, speakingfortheunborn.org. And usually it leaves people stunned right. in silence, unable to rebut. I, what I say is my summary is I say I'm pro-life because I'm pro-science. There's overwhelming scientific consensus that life begins at conception. And I'm pro-life because social justice begins in the womb, because every living human being is entitled to the most fundamental right, that being life itself. And I'm pro-life because I'm pro-woman. Abortion degrades women, treating their fertility as a defect and enabling men to use and abuse them and then abandon them. Abor abortion never empowers women, just the men that wish to exploit mm -hmm. them. And I'm pro-life because I'm against violence, and I go into that. I go into the visible evidence right. and objective morality. And then I say, that's why I'm pro-life. And then I ask, why aren't you? Right. And I never get a response. I never get a response. So it's good to have that 30-second summary. Of the ones that you, you point out, I would have thought today, uh, one of the ones that would probably work quite well would be the whole idea of social justice begins in the womb. Absolutely. That's the language of today, equality. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's good language today. It's, it's, it's abused and misused, that language today. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, whether whether we get into social ca causes of Black Lives Matter, whether you agree with the, the way that the movement is is used is not the not the point for me. The point is, is there injustice in the world that needs to be righted? Absolutely. Is there bigotry and racism in the world? Absolutely. 
and I use that th those good intentions and those good causes for our, our movement as well. So I'm not manipulating, but but we, mm -hmm. social justice is a very important uh, issue on, on multiple fronts, and it absolutely is a cause now for the unborn. Uh, early on, pro-choice arguments four and five, but this was interesting in your response. It says it's just a potential human being. You say there's simply no such thing as a potential human. It's unscientific and it's a made-up term. I didn't realize that. Yeah, there is no, there is no scientific or uh, potential human being. You know, being human is not a matter of degrees. You're either human, or you are not. You know, when we talk about, you know, when we talk about an embryo or a fetus, those are not non-humans. Those are just stages in the development of human beings, just as a newborn is and an adolescent is, and a young adult is and an elderly is. These are stages in our development. They're not stages in intrinsic um, value or intrinsic worth, and they're not stages of of uh, they're not we're not going from non-humans to humans you're either human or you're not right you also even in talk about here the idea of personhood being a manufactured term sure personhood if you look in history it's only used as a weapon so blacks weren't persons when we didn't want to when we wanted to subjugate them women weren't persons we want when we wanted to subjugate them um, and now we see the same thing with the unborn. Mm -hmm. uh, to be to be a person is to be a human being. Which, by the way, if you go to any household dictionary, it's not a complex metaphysical uh, problem. Go to go to Merriam-Webster and look. What's the definition of person? Is a human being. And any other definition is arbitrary. The only objective uh, definition of, of a person and it is a human. Unless we're ready to call mm -hmm. people in comas non-persons and non-humans. Are we willing to call Alzheimer's patients non-persons and non-humans? And I don't think we want to go there. Right. One of the classic arguments, number seven, the embryo is, uh, it's a woman's body. I can decide what it is. You say the embryo is in no way a part of the mother's body. Science clearly defines the body part as a structure that shares the same genetic code as the rest of the body. Right. So the appendix is, is a part of the body. It has the same genetic code, and it doesn't control its own development. That's the key term. So an embryo and a fetus obviously have its, their own genetic code. In fact, half the time it has a, an opposite sex of the mother who is carrying, carrying the baby, and it, and it has the genetic information to control its own development. So by definition, it's not a, a body part. And these, the, what I think all these arguments point out is that the pro-life cause depends on science, facts, and the truth, which is so refreshing, and it, it's, it really gets us motivated to be a part of this cause. The, the pro-choice movement just relies on cliches. It just relies on ad hominem personal attacks. And, and it, it's exciting to be on the side of truth, facts, and science. It really is. What's interesting, uh, number 10, an abortion should be permitted until the fetus can feel pain. Interesting. The other one is the idea that an embryo or fetus is unaware of its own destruction, so it doesn't matter. I never heard that one. Yeah, so we talk about things about whether something is sentient or not, and, and if it's not aware of its, we hear this all the time in, in real life conversations and, and when we read about these things, that, it, it, that the fetus embryo is unaware of its own destruction, so it doesn't matter. Um, but being aware is, is not the issue. If a woman, I, I always point out a woman drunk at a fraternity party who's molested by three men is, may not be aware of it, mm -hmm. but awareness does not, is not a requirement for an, an evil and a harm to have been done to that woman, just like a, a, an evil or a harm is being done during an abortion to the fetus and embryos. Number 16, even if the unborn are living, human beings, they have fewer rights than the mother. And you kind of hear that, the idea that we got past the idea, okay, maybe it's a baby, but the mother has more rights than the child does. Right, and there, and there we just have to look at the rights. And, and this is where I start to find parts of agreement. So a woman, should a woman have autonomy of her own body? Absolutely for the most part, just like a man should have autonomy of his own, over his own body, absolutely 
for the most part. But we have to look at competing rights. When we talk about justice, it's each person getting their due. So we know the rights of the mother should have absolute, we should do everything possible for, for preserving her bodily in, integrity and autonomy. But we have to look at the rights of the child as well. So the right of the mother mm -hmm. is the right to a lifestyle free of burden, which is an important one, but it's not an absolute one. The right of the baby is the right to life itself to not be killed. So we're talking about lifestyle versus life. Mm -hmm. And life has to trump lifestyle every time. So are there, does a woman have rights? Absolutely. I have a very strong, educated, powerful, successful uh, wife who should have from you know every right that I have and, and mm -hmm. probably more you know she's more capable than I am um, and I have five children two very strong daughters who I want to have bodily integrity and tremendous capability yeah. and, and tremendous rights but like all of our uh, rights in our life they're they're all mitigated by by where they infringe on somebody else and as we say the right to swing your fist right. ends just before it touches my nose what about, you know, in 27 through 30, you deal with the, I can't afford a baby right now, it's going to devastate my career, I'm going to have to quit school, now would be harmful, even to my other children. So the burden, these are the burden arguments. And again, they're, they're, these are heartstring arguments. And when a woman says, I don't know what's going to happen to me in life, we obviously sympathize and our hearts go out to this woman. The question is, is it okay to dismember a living baby alive? because a woman says it's inconvenient for her at that time in life. The response to a woman who says this is a terrible inconvenience is to rush to the woman's aid and help her in her time of need. We don't, uh, we don't eliminate the problem by killing. You know, solutions mm -hmm. based on killing uh, living human beings are never okay. So one thing the pro-life movement has to remember is that abortion isn't a sign that women are free, but, this, but a sign they're desperate. So one of the criticisms that we get in the pro-life movement, which is somewhat valid, is, is that sometimes we focus too much on the fetus and embryo and not enough on the mother. And it's not an either-or phenomenon. We must be rushing to the aid of women. Right. And I think it's fair to say that the pro-life movement has come a long way in that area. And so uh, a lot of those arguments in the past are not as true today as they might have been when this first happened in the 70s. Pro-choice argument 46. Why should men... Uh, why should only men be able to engage in sex without life-altering consequences? And you make the point the feminine, uh, feminist movement wasn't wrong when it said that men were acting like pigs. They were wrong, though, in saying that the solution to this sad fact is for women to also act like pigs, which is exactly, we, we've defined deviancy down. Absolutely. Women are aspiring to the worst characteristics in men. Um, and, and that's a very bad sign. That's a very bad sign, and we're seeing that in the culture we have right now that women think their freedom is sex without consequences. And we've learned that's, that's enslavement for them and it's destruction for, for women because abortion degrades, every, you know, you can't have free sex without abortion. And abortion degrades everything it touches. It degrades the mother, it degrades the father, it degrades the doctor, it degrades the nurse that's assisting in the procedure and to the custodian who's gonna pick up the remains mm -hmm. in the plastic bag of the day. Abortion degrades everything it touches. Pro-choice argument 49, better to be aborted than end up in an unhappy foster care system of many states. And you actually have a meme like image on the side that says, uh, a close one, this baby was almost born into poverty, but his mother killed him in the nick of time. Right, that's Babylon B. So right. these are the arguments that, that God forbid the child end up in foster care. It's better to, to dismember and kill the child. And what these people are saying, it's better, it's better to eliminate the sufferer than the suffering. So... Is it true that, that a lot of our foster care systems need radical and massive improvement? You bet it's true. 
Is the answer killing babies so they don't go in the foster system? Absolutely not. We need to focus our energies in improving the foster system, improving and streamlining the adoption systems. So we need, to, and, and the pro-life movement needs to do this as well. We right. need to rush to the aid of these women, rush to the aid of foster care, rush to the aid of, of crisis pregnancy centers, et cetera. We need to put our money where our mouth is. And we do that, by the way, right. but we need to step up to that and make, bring it to the next level. Right. It doesn't get acknowledged all the time in the media because it, it doesn't support their, their argument. Uh, number 50, uh, talking about dealing with handicapped or deformed children. Uh, we don't want to bring them into the world like Iceland was was doing uh, earlier. Uh, so you're making an argument, you say, for eugenics, improving the species in society by eliminating undesirable traits. Well, they certainly could because that's how Planned Parenthood started, right? Absolutely. Margaret Sanger was 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 a big advocate. She was a proud uh, racist, a proud eugenicist, who didn't like the what she called the indiscriminate breeding of minorities, who, whom she considered um, human weeds. So uh, she planned these pan Planned Parenthood centers. They put them in minority neighborhoods. And right now, for instance, 80% of their Planned Parenthood centers are in minor minority neighborhoods. And, and abortion, as a result, abortion is the number one killer of black lives, for example, in America, more than heart disease, more than diabetes, uh, more than violence combined. Right. And, and one thing we know is when, when people argue for aborting a, a, a child with a disability, they're arguing for their own convenience. They're not, they're not arguing to help a child. The majority of handicapped uh, people lived happy lives. And you can go back even Absolutely. to John Merrick, the elephant man, who says, uh, I'm glad I'm alive because I'm loved. And you know who most dislikes to hear these things? The parents of disabled children to think that people are telling their children's lives and their lives would be better if they didn't have them. I think it's a horrific thing to do. And eugenics puts you in the company of groups in, in our past world history that you don't want to be associated with. Like the Nazis, life not worthy of life. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and she was popular over there. With that, we're going to have to leave it. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen A. Christie. The book, Speaking for the Unborn, 32nd Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. You should check this book out. Very illuminating. Available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you for joining us right here on Bookmark. We shall see you next time.